Good morning. morning. Am I on? I'm on? Okay, there we go. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Kurt. I'm the pastor that is up on the Spirit Lake campus. And Pastor Jordan and I, uh, sort of a couple times a year, just try to switch. So he gets a chance to know people in Spirit Lake, and I get a chance to know you. And I have been totally looking forward to, since August, when we planned this, a chance to come down and see you guys. I really mean that. Some of you I have known because you were originally part of the Spirit Lake campus and you were part of the launch team, and it's like a reunion time to see you guys again. Others of you I have come to know more recently as the Spencer campus has grown, and still some of you I haven't even met yet. So I really hope I get a chance to connect with you a little bit after service, at least put a name and a face together and just sort of build that relationship that we have with one another across uh, campuses here in the Crosswinds family. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we're going to dive into our study of God's Word this morning. We've got a great passage in front of us today. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we first want to say, just thank you for putting us in a place and in a time in this world and in the history of this world where we can come to know your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for connecting us to a church where your word is taught. Thank you for putting us in a place where we have access to your word so we can actually know the truth in this world, not constantly be led astray by the lies that we so often hear. I ask that you would have your hand upon our country. Uh, We are a very divided country right now, a very difficult time. And yet, in the midst of the difficulties we face as a a nation, your people are called to be salt and light in this world. Help us to be able to make a spiritual difference and an attitudinal difference in our everyday world with the people you give us the privilege of rubbing shoulders with. Thank you for making us a a multi-site church and that you allow us to do together what neither of our campuses could do alone. That we can fly faster and higher and farther together than either of us could alone. Thank you for that privilege you have given us. Now my thoughts turn to the study of your word this morning. I ask that you would really help me to preach your word well today, and that your Holy Spirit would just soften our hearts Make us tender, and as your word is read and as your word is taught, may you, Holy Spirit, guide us and direct us in how we can become more like Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one we so desperately love. We ask this in the name of Christ, amen. One of the things that's neat about uh, being a multi-site church is Jordan and I are always preaching on the same text each weekend. So that allowed one weekend when I had a COVID scare in my family, Jordan to actually do double duty and cover my campus as well as this one. And it also allows us to switch if we need to. So uh, we're going to be this morning on Mark chapter 10. I'd like to ask you to take out your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 43. We're going to study down to verse 52. I'm going to ask you to follow along in your copy of the Word of God as I read that. Uh, Please stand out of reverence for the Word of God as I read Mark 
chapter 14, 43 through 52. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him away and lead him away under guard. When he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, Have I come out as against a, a robber? with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day I was with you in the temple, teaching, but you did not seize me. But let the Scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. That ends the reading of the Word of God. You can be seated. The way we're going to study this this morning is, first I'm going to take a few minutes to give you some introductory background to lead into this text, because you need a little backstory before you get to the main story. Then we'll work our way through these verses one at a time, and then we'll give you some practical applications at the end that apply to all of our lives today. So if you have your outlines, I usually give you an outline. It's in the bulletin there. I'm just going to start with the, the backstory. The Jews were really religiously ruled by a group called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was sort of like the Supreme Court of Judaism. And it had people who were liberal on it and people who were conservative on it. You may remember this from early in our study of the Gospel of Mark. The Sadducees were the the liberals on the Sanhedrin. They only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in angels. Then there was a conservative side. Those were the Pharisees. They believed in all the books of the Old Testament that you and I have in our Bible. They did believe in the resurrection. They did believe in life after death. And they did believe in angels. There was actually a third smaller group in there. You might remember those. Those are the scribes. The scribes were actually a subset of the Pharisees. Now, if you have a bunch of liberals and a bunch of conservatives on some kind of a ruling group, what do you think it was like? I think the news is telling us. They fought about everything tooth and nail against one another, sort of like we see today. But amazingly, there was one thing they actually did agree on, one thing they were unified on with very few exceptions, and that is that they wanted Jesus dead. Why could they agree on that? Well, there's a variety of reasons. Well, they were jealous of Jesus. I mean, after all, Jesus would heal people. Jesus would create food out of nothing. Jesus could calm storms. Jesus could do so many things. He could, um, what did I have down here? I can't even, I lost my notes in here. Yeah, he could, people who were deaf could hear. He could create food and calm storms. They were incredibly jealous of the things that he could do that they couldn't do. 
they were also jealous of his popularity. Remember the triumphal entry? When thousands of people essentially threw down a, a red carpet welcome for Jesus as he came into Jerusalem. It was a, car, a, a, a palm welcome, but it's a red carpet welcome. And they sang his praises. Nobody sang praises for them. They were jealous of that. They were also frustrated because he was ruining them financially. During that week, remember when he came into the temple and he kicked out the money changers and kicked out the animal sellers? The ones who were making a lot of money on it were actually the religious leaders. They were the ones getting a huge financial kickback on that operation. And Jesus just impacted their pocket. He's got to go. That's my money. When they tried to debate him in that final week, remember what happened? We looked at this earlier in the Gospel of Mark. He destroyed them in debates. One after the other, they left with egg on their face, looking like fools. So they were unified. Jesus has to go. Jesus must die. And when we entered Mark chapter 14, in the first two verses, it says that they were unified about getting rid of Jesus, but they were having a problem with when to do that. Because while they hated Jesus, the crowds loved Jesus. They couldn't get enough of his teaching. So they decided we have to get rid of him, but we can't do it during the Passover. We'll have to wait until the festival's over with, because if the crowds see us arrest him, they'll riot. But then things turned uh, in a different way. Just a few verses later in Mark chapter 14, verse 10, they were approached by an insider, a man named Judas, one of Jesus' inner 12 disciples, had become a turncoat. And Judas said to them, I will give you Jesus just the way you want him. I'll give him to you in a way that he is away from the crowds so you can arrest him and not worry about this riot. And Judas would do it for such a discounted amount of money too. Only 30 pieces of silver, which historically was the cheapest price for a slave. Betraying Jesus for almost no money at all. It's like a discount. While things begin to look like it's all happening out of control and the world is falling apart, actually everything is happening just as God had planned. Judas betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, that's actually prophesied in the book of Zechariah that this is exactly the way Jesus would go. All week long, Judas was looking for that opportunity to betray Jesus when he was away from the crowds, but it wasn't presenting itself. As we've studied in previous weeks, Jesus would teach among the crowds during the day, but at night he would retreat going up the Mount of Olives outside of the city of Jerusalem to Bethany or Bethpage, sort of out of the grasp of the religious leaders so they couldn't get him. But Thursday night, that night would be different. The Old Testament scriptures had stipulated that Passover needed to be eaten inside of the walls of Jerusalem. It was eaten in the evening. There, Jesus would be in the city, away from the crowds, under the cover of darkness. This was the opportunity Judas was waiting for, his chance to finally betray Jesus, his Lord and Master. If you remember, Jesus set up that final meal in a very um, 
so we call it very cloistered, or it's not the right word. He set it up in a very coy way so that none of the disciples knew where it was taking place until they got there. The reason he did that is he couldn't have Judas betraying him before it was time to betray him. And then at the upper, at the, in the upper room, at that last Passover, which was actually the first Lord's Supper, at that meal, while they're enjoying the meal together, Jesus dropped a bombshell that made everybody go dead silence. While they're eating, he said, oh, by the way, guys, one of you will betray me. People didn't know what to say. One by one that night during the meal, they came up to Jesus and said, is it me? Would I do that? In fact, the other Gospels tell us even Judas came up to Jesus and said, I certainly wouldn't betray you. And Jesus said to him, yep, it's you. You think your betrayal is a secret, but it's well known to me. And Jesus said to him, well, what you have to do, you can do, but do it quickly. And he, he exited him out of the room at that point. And Judas went to begin the process of betrayal. Jesus finished up the meal. And then as we know from last week in our study of this gospel, he went across the Kidron Valley. They they waded through the brook Kidron, and they went up just the other side of the Mount of Olives, not too far up the mountain, just beginning to go up the mountain, because there was a garden that Jesus and his disciples used to frequent. It was an olive garden. That's what Gethsemane literally means. There Jesus went, and there is where he prayed. Then last week, when we were studying that passage, there's a couple things we learned. I'll just bring back two things to remembrance. One is, remember how Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? You know, if possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is fully God, and he knows he's come to die, but he's also fully man. Gee, dying on a Roman cross and becoming sin for us is not that fun. And he gives us a pattern to follow in our prayer life. Tell God, God, it's not this is what I want in this situation. I really don't necessarily want to die. But what's more important than what I want is what you want. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus gives us, as I said, a pattern for us to follow in our times of prayer. Tell God what our will is, but also submit our will to what God's will is for our lives. But there's something else, uh, at least we talked about on Spirit Lake. I wasn't too sure if Jordan covered it or not last week, but it's very important. Jesus, as a divine being, knows he's come to die, but as a human being was struggling with accepting the fact he's going to die. Why did he take this long time in prayer? Prayer is the way that God impresses his will onto our lives. Prayer is the way God forms His will into our hearts. During that time when Jesus prayed, it was when His will sort of submitted to God the Father's will, and He went from resisting the cross to embracing the cross so He would die for you and me. That's where we left off last week. Jesus has finished praying. He's had those three different times where he's had to wake his disciples. 
And now we pick up again right in the story we just read. Let's work our way through these verses one at a time. The first thing we find is what I call the confronting crowd. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Let's start by talking about Judas. So incredibly privileged. Imagine that. Three years of living with Jesus, night and day, being taught by Jesus, being loved by Jesus, seeing the miracles of Jesus, firsthand story. All of us would love to be in that position. But in spite of all of that privilege, Judas turned on Jesus and betrayed Him. One of the things we see in Scripture, we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, is sometimes there's demon-possessed people. We see how nasty and ugly those things are. But the Scriptures tell us in other Gospels that when Judas decided to betray Jesus, he didn't become demon-possessed. He literally became Satan-possessed. That what happens at that night is him being motivated and inspired by Satan himself. When he left uh, the upper room and Jesus dismissed him at that point, what did he do? Well, the first thing we know is he went to the Sanhedrin. He had to convince the religious leaders, this is the time, now is the time that you can get Jesus, the one I, I promised you would happen. Go, we have to move quickly. But most of us didn't realize is that Judas didn't just go to the Sanhedrin. He actually went to the Roman fortress Antonia to secure a detachment of soldiers that night as well. You say, really? Did that actually happen? The religious leaders were still concerned about the riots and the crowd. Even though it was the middle of the night, he's still in Jerusalem, and it is the Passover. So Judas went to the Roman fortress Antonia to secure soldiers. And we see this actually if you look at the Gospel of John. John chapter 18, verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went with lanterns and torches and weapons. When it says Judas secured a band of soldiers, that's a key word. The word band is the Greek word spirion. A spirion literally means one-tenth of a Roman legion. The Roman legion is 6,000 soldiers. A tenth of a Roman legion is 600 soldiers. Historically, we know that at this time, during the Passover, the Romans moved soldiers from the fortress in Caesarea into Jerusalem at the fortress Antonia, just outside of the temple, in order to keep peace, because Passover was a time when many nationalistic Jews tended to rebel. So we had a number of soldiers there, and he secured from them a detachment of 600 Roman soldiers to go with them. When they heard that this was a chance to capture Jesus and that the Jews were determined to capture Jesus. And this was the one who everyone had hailed as their king only days before as the triumphal entry. You can see the Romans. Yes, this is a guy we better get under control during Passover. This is a guy that could be a problem. 
we read in this text that the arresting party had not just swords, but they had clubs. Let me explain how this would go together. The swords would actually be carried by the Roman soldiers, which we know there is probably about 600 of those in the arresting party's detachment. The, the sword that is used here is a specific word for sword. There's two different kinds of swords the Romans used. They used a long sword and they used a short sword. This word here specifically is the word for a short sword. It's a double-edged blade that the Romans used in hand-to-hand street combat. And the Roman soldiers were trained to use it to slit throats or to pierce vital organs, quickly ending life. What about the clubs? The clubs would have come with the temple guard. They were not allowed to carry swords, so they carried what you call billy clubs or, or, or night sticks that they would keep people in line. They were originally scared that they would not have enough of their own um, temple forces to keep the, the rest of Jesus under control. Because if the crowd somehow found out about this during the night and they rioted during the night, they needed reinforcements which is why the Romans were called and why they were there. John also tells us in his recounting of these events that they brought torches and lanterns with them so they could see during the night. I want you to picture the scene. Jesus, as we know, is in the Garden of Gethsemane, just slightly up the Mount of Olives. So he has a chance from that vantage point to be able to see into the city. And then he would start to see the torches and the lanterns gathered. If you add this up, if there's 600 Roman soldiers, plus the temple police, plus the elders, what do you have? Maybe 700, 800, 900, maybe 1,000 people that are going to be in this arresting party? And he could see them, all the lights, walking across the Kidron Valley. He could see them walking up to the base of the Mount of Olives. Imagine the anxiety in your heart watching them come, hundreds of them, to arrest you. Let's continue in the text where we read next about the betraying disciple. And the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under God. This verse is a reminder that Jesus, even though he is God in the flesh, He looked just like you and just like me. Then in a crowd, he could pass for anyone else. He did not have a halo over his head, by the way. He didn't glow in the dark at night. It would be easy for them to maybe grab the wrong person, arrest the wrong person, or for somebody to step up and say, I'm Jesus. They arrest him and find out all of a sudden in the morning light they got the wrong guy. And the real Jesus got away. So Judas arranged a sign, a mark, that he would put on the real Jesus. He says, I'll let you know who it is. It's the one that I kiss. Think about this. A kiss is supposed to be a sign of affection. It's supposed to be a sign of deep love. In our culture, it's usually reserved between a husband and, and a wife In that culture, it took place between men, but not in a sexual way. It was a way of expressing your deep love and gratitude to someone. Usually, you would kiss someone on the cheek, or you would kiss someone on the hand. And here is Judas, 
choosing as his way to mark out Jesus, the one who has loved him for three years straight, the one who had just washed his feet in the upper room, the one who had given him the seat of honor at the Last Supper, choosing to betray him and mark him with a kiss, bastardizing that a sign of affection and love. That's why I titled this message, The Kiss of Death. Because, by the way, this is the origin of that phrase. This is truly the original kiss of death. But then, look at what it says here. As soon as Judas kisses Jesus, he says, go ahead and arrest him. What that shows you is a little bit about Judas's heart. He could go for one moment faking his expression of love to Jesus with a kiss, and in the next moment, saying, arrest him and take him away. What we find is that Judas was extremely skilled in living what's called a double life. He was a person who could be an apostle of Jesus during the day, but the Gospel of John tells us that he was a, three, a thief from the money bag during the night. He had become skilled at acting one way in public, but living another way in private. Now, I don't know how many of you are in life groups. Here at Crosswinds, we encourage you to be in life groups. And our life groups are sermon-based. And I'm going to tell you that one of the life group questions this week that you're going to delve into is looking at the danger of living a double life and what we can learn from Judas who lived a double life. So I just whet your appetite for that this week. But I'll tell you this, those who become skilled at living a double life, pretending to be someone who loves Jesus at one time, but in the background working against Jesus and being deceitful, You're putting on a good face by day, but being a bad face by night, someone who becomes skilled that way will achieve some of the darkest and worst kinds of sins possible. It's the worst way to go. I encourage you as you talk about that later today. Now let me continue and look at the next verse. And when he came... He went up to him and, and at once he said, Rabbi! And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him to seize him. You can see that duplicity of his life continuing. First thing he does when he sees Jesus, he says, Rabbi! Rabbi in that term, that culture, is a term of endearment. It's a way of saying, you're my teacher. You're my hero. You're the one I want to admire. You're the one I want to follow and pattern my life after. But it's all a farce. It's all a front. It's all part of a double life, Judas. And then it says, then he kissed him. By the way, the word kiss here is very interesting. It's the word kiss in the Greek with a modifier in front of it that intensifies it. So this wasn't a peck on the cheek. This is what you call a super kiss. Maybe between a, a husband and wife, we'd call this a slobbering kiss. Maybe between a man and a woman, we would call this a make-out 
kiss. I mean, he went way over the top trying to show affection to Jesus and love to Jesus. And as soon as he pulled away, arrest him. Get rid of him. He was a man who was incredibly skilled at living a double life, which is a very dangerous thing to do. By the way, none of this fooled Jesus because double life people, they think they're fooling everybody. And oftentimes they do, but the one person you can never fool when it comes to living a double life is Jesus. He knows when the double life is being lived. We find this in Luke chapter 22, verse 48. As soon as Jesus, or Judas betrayed Jesus with that kiss, Jesus said this, So Judas, you're betraying the Son of Man with a kiss. You think you're fooling me, but I've known you're living this double life all along. By the way, this is exactly what was described in Scriptures about the way Jesus would be betrayed. Psalm 41 verse 9 says this, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. I should mention to you that at this point in the Gospel of Mark, this is the last we see of Judas, and Judas will pass off the scene. But it's not the last we hear about Judas from the other Gospels. Let me just tell you the rest of Judas' story and what happened to him. Matthew chapter 27 tells us that after Judas betrayed Jesus, he actually hung around. He watched what happened to Jesus from a distance, from the fringe of the crowds. He saw the two fake trials the trumped-up charges that were put in front of Jesus, first by the Jews and then in front of the Romans. He saw the whipping that Jesus endured, the beating that Jesus faced, the crown of thorns pressed into his skull as the blood ran down his face. He saw Jesus beat to the point of disfigurement. As Isaiah says, Jesus was beaten to the point of not saying, who is this? But Isaiah says it was, what is this? He no longer even looked like a human being. At that point, the Bible tells us that Judas did have a change of heart. He experienced remorse for what he had done. Not repentance. There is a difference. I'll explain it in a moment. But he felt bad for what he did, betraying innocent blood. He went into the temple and he said to the priest, I should have never done this. I betrayed innocent blood. And they turned and looked at him and said, that's your problem, not ours. He took and he threw the money into the temple. He went away and according to Acts chapter 1, he, he hung himself. Didn't do a very good job though. Either the rope broke or the branch that he hung himself on broke. And then he fell, landed on the rocks below and his guts burst out. A tragic end to a tragic life. I said to you a moment ago that Judas eventually did experience remorse, but not repentance, and there is a difference. Let me explain this to you. When Judas realized that he had sinned, he felt bad for what he did. At that point, remorse means you run from God. Repentance means you run to God. Which way did Judas choose to run? He chose to run from God. 
which was the end of his life. I don't know what you have done this week. I don't know what brokenness is in your heart this week. But don't respond to it like Judas. Don't run from God in shame. Run to God in repentance. His arms are open. This is why his son came. This is why his son died. To forgive you and restore you of your sins, no matter what you have done. As we continue the story, we go from the betraying disciple to what is the retaliating disciple. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Well, that doesn't tell us, Mark. I wish you would give us some more details, like who did it? Why did they do it? Why did you even include that? Mark is very terse in what he tells us. But oftentimes, we're blessed with the other Gospels to explain more of what happened. And that's exactly what we find. When we go to the Gospel of John, we find out the person who did this was none other than Peter. The person who lost his ear was the servant of the high priest, a man named Malchus. And what happened was, it seemed like... uh, Peter saw everything happening, and Peter felt, well, maybe this is the time I should pick out my sword. Maybe this is the time I should defend Jesus. And he he went and, and tried to lop off this ear. And Jesus stops him on the spot. Before we go into why Jesus stopped him, I'm going to ask you, why do you think Peter did this? Why did he have such bravado to whip out a sword and start to chop off ears? I think there's a couple reasons. One is I think like that Peter probably felt like he had been failing Jesus recently. You ever feel that way? Remember earlier in the Gospel of Mark, at least I should say in the 14th chapter of Mark, what had happened that Jesus had told his disciples that all of you will betray me. And Peter said, no, surely not I. I will rather die with you than deny you. Jesus was like, sure, yeah, right, Peter. And then they go into the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him deeper into the garden, selected them as special, and said, can you just pray with me? And what did they do? Fell asleep. And Jesus came back, and he was in agony, and he was sweating blood, the Scriptures tell us. And he was crying out in agony, wake up, guys, and pray. They were up for a brief moment and went back asleep. Three times he failed Jesus miserably. I think at this point he's like, well, this is my chance to redeem myself a little bit. I said I'd rather die with you than deny you, so maybe I should get my sword out and start whacking away. But there's something else that most of us maybe miss. What was happening at this point? Very unique piece of this arrest. It's found in John chapter 18. As this crowd of 700, maybe up to 1,000, came to arrest Jesus, what we find is there was a little uh, exchange that took place. Jesus is the one who actually walked up to them and said, Who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus said, I am He. Does anybody know what happened at that point according to the Gospel of John? According to the Gospel of John, have you... Oh, you already told them. Ah, I haven't gotten there yet. 
Wait till I get there. Give it away, my punchlines. According to the Gospel of John, what happened is they literally, all of them, 700 to 1,000 of them, drew back, and they didn't just sit to the ground. They were knocked down to the ground, almost like a shockwave hit them when Jesus simply said, I am he. You can see Peter's like, this is the chance. Jesus, you just keep talking. I'll start using my sword. This is my chance to fight for you. Well, and there was my, there's my example right there. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And they drew back and fell to the ground. Thank you very much. By the way, I think we need to note here just a little observation. Can Jesus defend himself from this crowd? Any problem? Absolutely not. One word was a shockwave to knock them enough to the ground. He is fully capable of defending himself. He does not need Peter's help. Look what happens. And we find this in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus addresses Peter. Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? Peter, put away your sword. Those who take life by the sword will be dying by the sword. Peter, if you start killing people, those Roman soldiers have a right and an obligation to take your life. Do you realize what Jesus was saying there? He was advocating the right of capital punishment, the right of a military to take life if necessary. He was reaffirming what Genesis chapter 9 says, which is whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And let me just pause for a moment and apply this right into our modern day world. We live in a time of great political unrest, don't we? People who get upset with one another because of different political stances. People who get out guns and start to shoot one another. They think they have a right to do that. And yet, what would Jesus say? Put away your sword. Life is incredibly sacred. Whoever takes life by the sword will be dying by the sword. Peter, don't start taking people's life at this point. I can defend myself if I need to. He says... If I call to God, won't he send me 12 legions of angels if I wanted them? That doesn't mean much to us until we start to think about this. Remember I told you earlier what a Roman legion is. Remember how many soldiers it was? Anybody? 6,000. 12 legions of angels is how many? Do the math. 72,000. I got a good math guy in the back. Okay, now go back into the Old Testament. How many angels did it take to kill 185,000 Assyrians in one night? How many angels did it take to destroy all the firstborn of Egypt in one night? I think Jesus has plenty of firepower. All I need to do is call and God will send, God my Father will send all that I need. I don't need you taking life. And here's why I don't want you taking life, Peter. John chapter 18, verse 11 says this. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. 
Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? In other words, the reason I'm being arrested is not because they have power over me, but because I'm allowing them to arrest me. My arrest, my beatings, my crucifixion, it's all part of God's will for my life. What's not God's will is that you try to take a life or take this guy's ear. <laughs> in fact, it's interesting. In Luke 22, verse 5, we find that right at that time, Jesus went and then healed Malchus's ear on the spot. Now, I think there's a lot of interesting things going on here. It looks like, at this point, the world is falling apart around Jesus, doesn't it? But is the world falling apart around, it all, around him at all, or is it under complete control? Jesus has it under complete control. He knew about the betrayal long before it was going to happen. He knocked all the soldiers back down with just a single word. Just his voice is enough to save himself. He healed Malchus's ear. Jesus could stop his betrayal and arrest at any time. But the reason he doesn't is because it's part of God's plan. The reason he was betrayed the reason he was arrested is because he was going to the cross to die out of love for you and for me. He was going to the cross to become sin for us, to save us. It looked like it was all out of control that night. It wasn't. Jesus had everything completely under control and could have at any moment turned the tables. But he didn't. He took it all for you and for me. Now let's look at the, the next point, the powerful Jesus, the all-powerful Jesus. Jesus said to them, have you come out, against, uh, come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the Scriptures be fulfilled. By the way, he says, all this is written about in the Scriptures ahead of time. Exactly how I would go, the fact that you would arrest me, the fact that Judas would betray me. Every single thing, by the way, is lining up exactly according to God's plan, the way it was foretold in Scriptures. So Jesus will die on Friday at 3 o'clock, precisely at the same time the Passover lambs are being slain. He will die as the one true Passover lamb that actually takes away sin, exactly according to God's plan. One quick application that is so important. I don't know what is going on in your world right now. I don't know how out of control your life is feels right now. Maybe with the pandemic, you know, you've lost work. Maybe with this pandemic, all of a sudden, you know, you're struggling with your income. I don't know how your world is out of control, but I'm going to tell you right now that if Jesus had everything under control during the night of his betrayal, so nothing happened that it wasn't expected, and it all happened according to God's plan, that means that right now, whatever you're going through, Jesus still has that under control. 
and nothing has hit you that's apart from God's plan. It's not an easy plan. Death for Jesus on the cross was not an easy plan. But wasn't it a good plan? It was a good plan, better than any of our plans. And I don't know what you're going through today. It's not an easy plan. But I'll tell you, when you look back at it on the vantage point of history, you will say, God, that was a good plan. Thank you for what you were doing through my life and with me. Now let's quickly look at the bottom two. The cowardly apostles. They all left and fled. The idea is Jesus at this point is completely alone. Then we have a fun verse called the mysterious streaker. That's what it is. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. They seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Who is this guy? I have no idea. Matthew, John, and Luke don't talk about him at all. All we know, he's a man, he's young, he's running around at night dressed in a bedsheet, and it's not Halloween. We do know he's probably coming from a wealthy family because unless you were wealthy, you wouldn't even have a linen bedsheet. So that's the end of the facts. Now let's move on to a little bit of speculation and just realize this is speculation. Many Bible scholars believe that this is actually Mark, the author of this gospel. This is writing himself in as a cameo appearance. Mark, his family lived in Jerusalem at the time. Mark was a young man. Mark's family was wealthy from what we can tell. And apparently what happened is he wrote himself in like a cameo appearance. Now, what is a cameo appearance? You guys ever watched Marvel movies? You knew who Stan Lee is? Stan Lee was the creator of Marvel Comics, and he would show up in a movie for about a three-second scene. Uh, that's sort of what Mark seems to be doing, putting himself in his gospel for literally a three-second scene. The question is, why does he do it? If it is Mark, here's what I think is going on. He's saying, you know, guys, it wasn't just his apostles that left him, betrayed him, and fell away from the, him that night. It was even me. I failed him too. I ended up running through the streets naked. Should have taken more than a bedsheet. Now, what are the lessons that we can learn? Well, the big overarching lesson, obviously, is that God's large and in charge. That nothing, even though the world looks like it's completely out of control, everything was happening according to God's plan. But there's a couple other things we can learn here. Number one, those who try to destroy God's plans will find their evil actions becoming part of God's plans to accomplish His good purposes. The Jews and Judas thought they were destroying Jesus. They thought they were destroying what He wanted to do. Instead, their evil actions were taken and incorporated by God into part of his good plan. The good plan that Jesus would die for our sin. This is incredibly encouraging because it's not just true for Jesus, it's true for you and me. No matter what obstacles we face, no matter what evil is done in our life, none of it 
can thwart God's good plan for the growth of his kingdom, and none of it can thwart God's good purposes for his people. Did you hear that? No evil that we face that is done against us can thwart God's good plan for his kingdom or God's purposes for his people. It cannot ruin your life. Now, does that mean that life will be easy? Absolutely not. Was crucifixion hard for Jesus? Totally. Sometimes when evil is done to us, it is very hard. It hurts, doesn't it? But it's not going to ruin what God's doing. This is why we have this verse that we can always go back to, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things will work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, even if it's evil done against us. Also, we learn this. While God incorporates evil actions in, as part of his good plan, that does not remove anyone of responsibility for their sinful choices. Couldn't you see Judas saying, well, it's a good thing I betrayed you. If I hadn't betrayed you, you wouldn't have died for all those people. Yet Judas is still responsible for his actions. What does it say in Matthew 26, 24? The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Sometimes you see that. Somebody does a sinful choice or a sinful action and something good is brought out of it and they try to justify their sinfulness. It's a good thing I said what I said. It's a good thing I did what I did. No, it's not. You're still responsible for the evil of your actions. God is the one who gets the credit for bringing good out of it, not you. Thirdly, beware of a heart that abandons Jesus when it gets to be hard to follow him. Didn't that happen that night for the apostles and for Mark? As soon as it got to be hard for, to follow Jesus, they ran from Jesus. But I want to apply it this way. Right now we're in a pandemic, and it's hard to come to church, isn't it? Now, I realize there are some that cannot safely come to church because of medical reasons or medical risks, and I'm totally fine for that. I understand. But the statistics say that about 30% of the U.S. church population will evaporate or go away for no good reason at all. As soon as it gets to be a little hard to follow Jesus, let's just walk away from Jesus. Don't let that be you. Lastly, beware of a heart that tries to justify violence or hatred to advance God's kingdom. Isn't that Peter? When all of a sudden it looked like things were falling apart, I can go kill people? <laughs> no, you can't. You can't. And I say that in our current cultural climate. There are people out there who do and say evil things. And we think that because they've done and said evil things, that we can do and say evil things back to them. No, we can't. Put away your sword. Jesus can defend himself. This is what we are to be known for as Christians. What did Jesus say in the upper room? A new command I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another not what political party you're a part of. What did Jesus also say? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. 
Not use your words like clubs and swords to cut them down and destroy their lives. There's a lot going on in this election. If you look into the news, they say, you know, if you don't elect the right person, the world is going to fall apart at the end of it. And evil is going to reign supreme. Let's be honest. It may not go the way we want. Evil may have a heyday. But I'll tell you this. On Jesus' rest night, when it looked like evil was winning and evil was in charge, it wasn't. God incorporated that evil into part of his good plan. And if in our current political climate, things don't go the way we expect or would hope, and all of a sudden it looks like evil's having a heyday, don't worry. God's large and in charge. He'll incorporate that evil into part of his good plan for the spread of his kingdom and the good of his people, just like he did for Judas on the night Jesus was betrayed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we get a chance to study it. Thank you for the many uh, facets of the diamond of your word that you can apply to our lives. I pray that this passage will uh, work its way deeply into the fabric of our hearts this week. That we won't forget about what we heard this morning, but we will remember it. Your Holy Spirit will bring it back to our lives. And you would guide us and direct us to live more pleasing to you. Most of all, I ask that when life seems to fall apart around us, like it was in the night of Jesus' arrest, may we remember that Jesus, you have it all under control and we do not need to fear. Everything was happening just the way you planned. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.